Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. If you enjoy these studies from the book of Isaiah, help us get the message out and share them with your friends. Remember to support Beth Emanuel with your tithes and offerings by clicking on the support tab at BethEmmanuel.org. You can't read the whole book of Isaiah, you know. We've got to skip ahead tonight to Isaiah chapter 20. This comes in a section of Isaiah. It really started around chapter 13, I think, where Isaiah is delivering these prophecies, these oracles about the nations, different nations. He says this, the oracle against this nation, the oracle against that nation, and so on. But you remember the bigger picture of what's going on in the book of Isaiah is that Isaiah has been predicting for some time now that the Assyrian Empire is going to attack the kingdom of Judah. That's really his main theme. His main message is, the Assyrian Empire is going to attack the kingdom of Judah as a punishment for covenant infidelity. And he has a good case example that he can point to, which is the kingdom of the north, the, uh, the, the kingdom of Israel, which during his tenure... Uh, is carried off, deported from the land of Israel, the ten northern tribes. Just think of that. How many tribes are there? There's 12 tribes. 10 out of 12 carried off, deported, uh, and, and gone. Right? And so Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, godly King Hezekiah, Hezekiah, who could have been the Messiah, uh, son of David, you know, is left in Jerusalem and Judah while... These, uh, you know, the northern kings are gone. The northern dynasties are gone. And so Isaiah's message to Hezekiah and to the Davidic household is this could happen here, will happen here, if you don't repent. Right? And so this is, uh, this is the, the message that he's bringing. And so we've been following the politics, the political situation of the ancient Near East that is sort of the backdrop to these different prophecies. And... Um, One of the things we saw, for example, was King Ahaz made a political alliance with Assyria in order to resist Pekah, king of Israel, and uh, and and Ramalia, Pekah, and what's the other guy, Rezin, Rezin, the king of Damascus, who had formed an anti-Assyrian coalition, and they tried to get him to join, and he wouldn't join, and then they attacked him. Remember that whole civil war, that whole situation, right? That was a good example of local powers, the small little local powers, coming together to resist this, uh, this, this superpower, this world superpower, which is the kingdom of Assyria. Now, you have to understand a little bit about the geography. I'm going to create this map in front of you, this imaginary map. So I want you to picture uh, the Mediterranean. We'll put the Mediterranean here. All right, so put the Mediterranean here. All right. And then here is the eastern seaboard, right? It's the Levant. That's, uh, this is where the land of Israel sits, on the eastern seaboard of the Mediterranean. Down here, Africa, right? And what's in Africa? Egypt. You get this big superpower nation, Egypt. Up here, Mesopotamia, the other cradle of ancient civilization, big superpowers, Assyria, Babylon, Persia. These superpowers are up here. And right now it's Assyria that's dominant. And so what do superpowers do? They fight each other, right? So if Mesopotamia wants to fight 
Egypt, they have to go through the land of Israel. If Egypt wants to fight Mesopotamia, they have to go through the land of Israel. So the land of Israel, that whole eastern seaboard that includes Philistia and all of Israel's neighbors, uh, is strategically critical. It's a strategically critical piece of property uh, because it's wedged between Egypt and Assyria. And at at one point, uh, the prophet Isaiah will even make... A reference to this, he'll say, you know, that the Lord's going to create a highway <laughs> between Egypt and Assyria. That's the political situation. So, if you're a king, if you're one of these smaller kingdoms that's wedged between these two big superpowers, you're always under the thumb, under the control of one of these superpowers. And so you're always trying to get out from under the control of one of these superpowers. And the way to do that is to ally with the other superpower. And if you ally with the other superpower, then the other superpower will support you. And um, then you can make a coalition maybe with some of the other local kingdoms. and, And you'll get support from this other superpower and you have a chance of breaking free from the superpower that's oppressing you. And this goes both ways. It'll go back and forth. There's through, through the Bible, we can see this story going back and forth between these different, these different superpowers. Well, at this point in history, Assyria is the superpower. They're controlling this eastern seaboard. And um, the temptation for us, uh, for King Hezekiah and his staff, is to say, you know what, maybe we could uh, make uh, an arrangement with Egypt, and Egypt would support us, and we could break free here. That's exactly what they do. They make a little arrangement with Egypt. Isaiah is against this, just like he was against them making an arrangement with Assyria in the first place. So Isaiah is against it, because they should be relying on Hashem, not relying on the nations, right? Isaiah is against this, and... um, they also bring into this coalition their, their neighbors, including Philistia, including Edom. It looks like there's a little local neighborhood resistance pocket that forms as we start reading in Isaiah chapter 20. This is called the Ashdod Rebellion. Ashdod is a Philistine city on the coast, uh, on that, that coastal highway but, uh, right along the Mediterranean. In the year that the commander came to Ashdod, when Sargon, king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and captured it. So this rebellion, uh, uh, this short-lived rebellion, fell very quickly. Sargon, who was the uh, king of Assyria, from, uh, I think I put his dates here, yeah, from 722, so from the fall of Israel till 705, he sends his army against Ashdod. So you have to imagine, I mean, it's kind of epic, this, these Assyrian legions marching into the land. You know the thing with Assyria? They're really wicked. They're really bad. They're really evil. You remember, remember Jonah? Remember jo- when, when God said to Jonah, said, Jonah, I'm going to send you to Nineveh, and uh, you tell those wicked, wicked people that I'm going to destroy their city in 40 days. And Jonah said, no thanks. And, and you think, well, why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Was it because he was afraid of the Ninevites because they're so wicked? No, it turns out the reason Jonah did not want to go was because he was afraid that if he went and preached to them, they might repent. And then, God forbid, God would have mercy on them. Well, this, is, of course, is exactly what happened. He went 
He tried to get away, got swallowed by a whale, got thrown up, ended up going to Nineveh then, preached to the Ninevites, and they repented. Well, for a little while anyway, God had mercy and did not destroy Nineveh. You realize Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. So here we are a generation later, and the Assyrians come and carry off, Jonah was a prophet from the north, you know, carry off all of Jonah's countrymen. And uh, now Isaiah down in Judah is dealing with the Assyrian threat. Okay, so the Assyrians march in and they attack the Philistines. And at that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, so we actually have a year for this. This is pretty great. This is the year 711 B.C. Isn't that great? We actually have a year? 711 B.C., so about 11 years after the fall of the north. How do, how do we have a year? The Assyrians kept records. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we have, we have Assyrian records that are very detailed and provide incredible corroboration for the biblical text. Isaiah, the son of Amos, says, Go, loosen the sack... The Lord says to him, Go, loosen the sackcloth from your hips and take your shoes off your feet. And he did so, going naked and barefoot. This is why you don't want to be a prophet. <laughs> Yeah, he's naked. I don't think it's metaphorical, no. And the Lord said, Even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years. So this is the three years of this Ashdod rebellion. All right. As a sign and a token against Egypt and Cush. Well, what's, why, why, is he, why is he behaving like this against Egypt? Because Egypt is the superpower behind this rebellion. So the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush. That's uh, Ethiopia. Young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. Then they will be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope. In Egypt, their boast. So we're we're speaking of the officials of Judah and the people of Judah will be dismayed and ashamed because they put their, because Cush was, that was their hope and Egypt was their boast. That was, this should have been the Lord their hope. The Lord their boast. So the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, behold, such is our hope where we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. We, we went to Egypt to, to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And, and, and these people are being carried, the Egyptians are being uh, carried away by the Assyrians. We, how shall we escape? That's, that's a, uh, chapter 20. Uh, and that sets us up to continue into chapter 21, which is an oracle against Babylon. Now Babylon is an early player here. Why are we talking about Babylon? And I didn't know this, so I had to look this up and figure this out. Like, why would Babylon be? Why would we be talking about Babylon? Because Babylon really isn't—they're not a big empire yet. Well, it turns out that Babylon launched a successful revolt in 720 against the Assyrians, and they were able to hold on for 10 years. And then, some five years later, they did it again. And so, Babylon even though they're way up here and not involved with Egypt and not involved with Israel, 
they are a source of inspiration. If Babylon can do it, if Babylon can break the Assyrian tyranny, you know, the Assyrians are just terrible people. They just love to impale people. They're really into impaling. They just impale you. Anyway, uh, if Babylon can do it, then we can do it too. That's the hope. Isaiah is not so confident. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea, which is a, it's, that's cryptic. Wilderness of the sea. See, Babylon is, the city of Babylon sits in the rivers. The Tigris, Euphrates, right? So it's, I guess that's an allusion to that. As windstorms in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness from a terrifying land, a harsh vision has been shown me. The treacherous one still deals treacherously. The destroyer still destroys. Go up, Elam. Lay siege, Media. I have made an end. That's Persia. Now we're talking about the Persians. Also in the neighborhood. This is Iran and Iraq we're talking about. Okay. I have made an end of all the groaning she has caused. For this reason, my loins are full of pain and anguish. Pains have seized me like the pains of a woman in labor. I am so bewildered I cannot hear, so terrified I cannot see. My mind reels, horror overwhelms me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. They set the table, they spread out the cloth, they eat, they drink. Who's speaking here? I'm not sure. I mean, we, we suppose it's the prophet speaking, but perhaps the prophet is putting words into the, the mouth of King Hezekiah or the mouth of, of Shebna, the king's steward, who have been hoping that Babylon is, uh, that they're able to launch a rebellion like, like Babylon did. Rise up, captains, oil the shields, for thus says the Lord to me. Go, station the lookout. Let him report what he sees. So there's, it's sort of a drama. We have a, like a, it's almost like a play, like we're reading a play. Go station the lookout. Let him report what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, a train of donkeys, a train of camels, whatever. So in other words, whatever, whatever he sees coming from a distance, let him pay close attention, very close attention. This is how you get the news. I think the image is... This is all happening in the king's palace. The king hears about uh, the, the king. The king hears bad news. He hears that there's bad. He's 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 in turmoil. The, there's bad news. It's put him in turmoil. He wants to send out a watchman to to pick up the news. Then the lookout called. Oh Lord, I stand continually on the watchtower and am stationed every night at my guard post. Now behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs. And one said, "Fallen, fallen is Babylon. All the images of her gods are shattered on the ground." So he gets the news. It's confirmed. The rumor's confirmed. The Babylonian revolt against Assyria failed. Oh, my threshed people, my afflicted of the threshing floors. This is really bad news for Judah. What I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I make known to you. And now another oracle. The oracle concerning Edom. This is the neighbors, next door neighbors. Edom, uh, children of Esau. The Jewish people are the children of Jacob. The children of Jacob, children of Israel. The Edomites are the children of Esau. One keeps calling me from Seir, that's the capital city of Edom. Watchman, how far gone is the night? Watchman, how far gone is the night? 
The watchman says, morning comes, but also the night. If you would inquire, inquire, come back again. No one knows what that really means. <laughs> yeah. I think the idea is, it's sort of like a one minute to midnight type of uh, expression. How far gone is the night? Is like how, how long until, until disaster strikes? Uh, it's almost here. Because the morning comes, but also the night. When, it, when disaster arrives, it'll be dark. Okay, next neighbor, Arabia. The oracle about Arabia. In the thickets of Arabia, you must spend the night. Caravans of Dedanites. Bring water for the thirsty inhabitants of the land of Tima, Timan. Meet the fugitive with bread, for they have fled from the swords, from drawn sword, from bent bow, from the press of battle. Thus says the Lord to me, in a year, as a hired man would count it, all the splendor of Kedar will terminate. These are the sons of Ishmael. These are Ishmaelites and Midianites and, and so forth. The remainder of the number of the bowmen, the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few. The Lord God of Israel has spoken. All of this is in reference to a certain disaster at, uh, with this, this Assyrian invasion that we've been predicting. All right. Now we're ready to look at chapter 22. The oracle concerning the Valley of Vision. What's the Valley of Vision? I wouldn't know. if I, you know, it's, it's, it's cryptic. He's, Isaiah's being, you know, this is the way the prophets do stuff. They're intentionally ambiguous. They're intentionally cryptic. So you're interested. You know? So you go, oh, what's that about? <laughs> It's, it's, he's talking about Jerusalem, as we'll see in just a, a few verses. What is the matter with you now that you've gone up to the housetops, you who are full of noise, you boisterous town, you exultant city? Your slain were not slain with the sword, nor did they die in battle. Your rulers have fled together, have been captured without the bow. All of you who were found were taken captive together, though they have fled far away. Therefore I say, Turn your eyes away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of panic, subjugation, confusion in the valley of vision, breaking down of walls and crying to the mountain. Elam took up the quiver with the chariots, infantry and horsemen. Kir uncovered the shield. This is an international army that's, uh, that's coming. Uh, then your choicest valleys were full of chariots. He's, Isaiah's predicting this invasion again. The horsemen took up fixed positions at the gate. He removed the defense of Judah. In that day, we depended on the weapons of the house of the forest. This is um, the palace. The house of the forest is the, the king's palace. Solomon built his palace uh, out of the, uh, it was called the forest of Lebanon because he used so much cedar when he built it. As you saw that the breaches in a wall of the city of David were many, you collected the waters of the lower pool. I'm going to stop right here and just give you a little historical vignette of what's going on. King Hezekiah, as he's planning his revolution to break free from Assyrian uh, domination, he's going to start a massive fortification plan in the land of Israel. He builds he builds uh, cities, he rebuilds the walls, does all sorts of um, 
internal projects, what do you call that? Um, uh, yeah, infrastructure, thanks, that's the word I was looking for. Infrastructure. Mm-hmm. For example, here we just read about the wall. It says, in the wall of the city of David, you, you saw many breaches in the wall of the city of David. You collected the waters of the lower pool. You counted the houses of Jerusalem and tore down houses to fortify the wall. This is true. Archaeologically, we can look at the archaeology of Jerusalem. And from the days of King Hezekiah, there's something called the the broad wall underneath Jerusalem. Archaeologists have uncovered this uh, parts of it in the Jewish quarter. This broad wall, how broad is it? Yeah, Yeah, it's about as broad as this room. I mean, and you can stand in the Jewish quarter right now, in in Jerusalem, look down into this archaeological pit, and see the remains of this wall, the foundations of this wall. And my brother always does this every time he leads a, a group to Israel. We're we're standing there looking down in the ground, and and it's hard. It's hard because people are so at this point in the trip, they're always so like, just they just want a they just want a coke or something, you know? It's hot. You know, and it's like, so it's hard to convey to them why these rocks matter. You know, because you're just looking at rocks, right? You're just, you're looking down, it's like, it's imagine if we're all standing around here, we're looking down, but imagine it's much, much larger, okay? But we're all looking down and it's like, and rocks down there, right? Well, if you look at the rocks, you can actually see the lines of houses from the days of King Hezekiah, like the foundation stones of houses that are cut apart. I mean, like, the house is broken through by this the line of this wall that went in. It illustrates this passage perfectly, where he says, you counted the houses of Jerusalem and tore down houses to fortify the wall. And you can see it. You can look right down, and you can see the actual text from Isaiah. It's amazing. He says, uh, you collected the waters of the lower pool. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool. You see that where it says that? This is Hezekiah's tunnel. Now everybody's heard of Hezekiah's tunnel, right? You go to Jerusalem. You have to go through Hezekiah's tunnel. It's just one of the things you have to do. It's, it's not good if you're claustrophobic. Kevin brought down some pictures. Some pictures of uh, from Bar Magazine of... Hezekiah's tunnel. That's what it looks like. You're walking through it. It's long. It's a long tunnel. The idea is that King Hezekiah is is he's preparing for this siege, and there's a critical problem. He knows that Jerusalem won't be able to withstand siege because the water supply is vulnerable. It's outside the walls of the city. It's at the base of the hill, and it's it's outside the walls of the city. So he creates a diversion channel. By tunneling under, you know, through the rock under the walls of Jerusalem, and then dump, you know, to, to dump the water to, to divert the water of this one spring, the Gihon Spring, and this is called the Shiloak Channel, the or Siloam, you know, Pool of Siloam. That's it's all connected uh, to dump this water inside the walls, so that when the sieging the the besieging army comes, they won't be able to cut off the water supply. Right, so, we'll read this text, you know, it says, he, you did this, you, uh, you made a reservoir between the two walls. Well, in 1870, this reservoir was discovered. 
Hezekiah's tunnel was discovered. Still, the water still runs through it. The water of the spring still runs through this thing after all these years. This tunnel is amazing. I mean, it's 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 at points the ceiling is is like I don't know, like twenty feet at some points, well, fifteen feet at least. No one's really quite sure why they made the ceiling so high, but it might have had something to do with oxygen supply for the workers while they were working at it with the pickaxes. I'm not sure. Anyway, um, some 50 years later, I don't know how long, decades later, uh, some Arab boys were going through the tunnel and they found an inscription. Actually, an inscription in the stone of the tunnel. It's a plaque from the days of King Hezekiah. It's no longer there. It's in the Baghdad Museum, I believe, at this point. This is uh, how it read. It said, um, the tunnel, and this is the story of the tunnel. It's, a, it's partial. It's a partial inscription. While the axes were against each other, and while three cubits were left to cut, the voice of a man called to his counterpart, for there was a fissure in the rock on the right, and on the day of the tunnel, the stone cutter struck each man towards his fellow, axe against axe, and water flowed from the source to the pool for 1,200 cubits, and 100 cubits was the height over the head of the stone cutters. So what this is telling is the story of how there were two teams of excavators going from opposite sides, and they, with pickaxes, through the solid rock of Jerusalem, through the bedrock, and they met in the middle. And at, as they came to the last couple cubits, they could hear each other calling through the rock. And they would you know, swing these axes until finally pickaxe met pickaxe as they're cutting through the stone. It's really amazing. This is right, you know, this is right out of the Bible. This is exactly what Isaiah is talking about with Hezekiah's fortifications and preparing for this Assyrian siege. My brother did a, a paper on this, on Hezekiah's tunnel. He's trying to figure out how they did that. I mean, how do you like set out, like set underground, set off two teams of workers? And so he's, he spent several days in the tunnel with a, another guy mapping out fissures in the rock to see if they could find a relationship, like perhaps they were following a fissure that they had identified. Pretty fascinating stuff. Another thing, this, isn't, this is not mentioned here, uh, but another thing that uh, we know that King Hezekiah did in, in establishing these store cities throughout the land in preparation for the siege was he also laid up provisions throughout the land. You know, like uh, supplies, food supplies, oil, grain, wine. And he laid up these uh, food supplies in big jars. And the jars were all stamped with his seal. You can see a picture of his seal here on the, uh, on your, is, has that scarab looking eagle thing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's Egyptian. It's an Egyptian design. Just remember, right now he's allied with uh, Egypt more or less. So, anyway, it's an Egyptian design, the scarab, and it says on it, Lamelech, which means for the king. Hundreds of these jar handles. So on the on the, the handle of the jar, they they apparently had a, a, a seal, an imprint, and when the, on the clay handle of the jar, you would stamp this thing, and then that was 
It was carted off to these various storehouse cities, warehouses, and kept for time of siege. And it said, for the king, you know, it's government property you don't touch. Hundreds of these lamellic seals have, have actually been found. It's pretty cool to find one. You know, they are rare. Whereas pottery in the land, I don't know, if you've been to Israel, you know that pottery is not rare, like ancient pottery. You can pick up, like, pretty much uh, everywhere. Look at the ground. There it is. You know, uh, pottery that's, because it's just, continue, it's been continuously inhabited for thousands of years. So, pottery's everywhere. Go to an archaeological site, they have pottery dumps outside the sites, which are just piles of pottery that archaeologists have already looked at and discarded. But to find a lamellic seal, very rare. I was with my brother when he found a lamellic seal. It was pretty, pretty exciting because he, he said to me that day, he said, I'm going to find a lamellic seal. <laughs> and he did. All right, so I, I'm bringing all this up, all this archaeology up, just to show you, you know, the, the illustrations of this preparation of the siege. Isaiah's talking about, but he's rebuking Hezekiah and his cabinet. He says, you, made, you, you did all this, you, you made the wall, you tore down the houses, you, you built up the defenses, you made the reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool, but you did not depend on him who made it nor did you take into consideration him who planned it long ago. Therefore in that day the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving the head, to wearing sackcloth. You want to know how to prepare for a siege? This is how you should be preparing for a siege. Instead, there is gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle, slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat, drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. But the Lord of hosts revealed himself to me. Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward. So now we find out who the real culprit is. is isn't necessarily King Hezekiah, but his steward. Shabna, who is in charge of the royal household. He's like Hezekiah's right-hand man. He's the... um, the head over the, the palace affairs, like um, Secretary of State, I don't know. What right do you have here? And whom do you have here that you have hewn a tomb for yourself? I'm going to talk about Shebna for a minute. This guy's name is Shebna Yahu, even though it just says in the Bible, Shebna. We meet him in a couple different places. You can meet him again in Isaiah 36.3, Isaiah 37.2, 2 Kings 18.37. Uh, he's Isaiah's secretary of state, like I said, he's, he's the, the steward. But we know his name is Shebneahu because... Hezekiah's secretary. Oh yeah, that's what I meant. Hezekiah's, yep. We know that he's, uh, his name is Shebneahu because of a, a, a clay boule, that's a, a seal impression that's been found with his name on it. And in fact, two of them have been found. One was found in 1966, and one was found in 2007. And it's... They were made from the same seal, we can tell. But the one in, in 1966 was a little uncertain about the, uh, the meaning of the inscription. You couldn't tell if it said belonging to Shebniah, son of the king. It was missing a letter, but uh, the 2007 one clarified it. it you know what a seal, these boule? They're like, it's, it's, again, it's like you punch it into clay, it's a seal, you press it into clay. 
And the thing is, when it gets fired in a conflagration, so like a big, big fire, the city that burns down, it's like going through a kiln. And that's, um, they're very small. They're just like little tiny like that. Anyway, you can see it. This is it. Belonging to Shabneahu, servant of the king. That's his signature. That was probably on his ring. This is the guy. Isaiah's rebuking him, saying, who do, you, who do you think you are? What right do you have here? Whom do you have here that you have hewn a tomb for yourself here? You who hew a tomb on the height. You who carve a resting place for yourself in the rock. It sounds to me like he's carved himself a tomb. He's, he's, he's given himself a tomb. While everybody else is preparing for siege, <laughs> he has a, um, he's, he's preparing his mausoleum among the tombs of the kings. Like, because he's, because he's Shebna, you know, the head over the king's palace, he should be buried with the kings. So I believe he's selected a tomb with the kings. And so Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord is about to hurl you headlong, O man. He's about to grasp you firmly, roll you tightly like a ball, to be cast into a vast country, and there you will die. And there your splendid chariots will be. Your sh- you shame on your mess, shame of your master's house. So Isaiah doesn't like Shebna. Here's an interesting thing: 1870 uh, inscription found in the valley where the tombs of the kings are. Inscription over a tomb, over a cave tomb. There's lots of tombs in there. You can sit there, you know, in the city of David, and just look across this, look across the valley to Silwan, and you can see the tombs. Like you can see tomb openings. You know, all along that hill. But uh, this was over one of them, over one of these tombs. It says uh, this inscription said, "This is the tomb of Shabniahu." Actually, it doesn't quite say Shabniahu. There's, it's a partial inscription. But there's still one in the vicinity of Jerusalem. Yeah, it's across the it's across the valley. It's adjacent to the Mount of Olives. It. South. It's the next ridge south. Mm-hmm. So find, we find this inscription. This is the tomb of Shabniahu, the royal steward. There is no silver or gold here, only his bones and the we assume it said his bones, and the bones of his maidservant with him. Cursed be the man who opens this. Once again, we have an amazing correspondence right out of the text of Isaiah. The archaeological record is like is is standing up, it seems, to say, hey. This is, these are real people. This is a real story. What happens to Shebna? Verse 19 says, I will depose you from your office. I will pull you down from your station. Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Okay, this, guy, this is another guy that works in the palace. We also meet him in, this, in a couple of other texts. In in Second Kings and in Isaiah, I will clothe him with your tunic, and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority. He will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem in the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder, and when he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will be will 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 open. So it kind of gives you an idea of how much authority Shebna had, or how, how much authority this steward has. Of course, the king has the ultimate authority, but it sounds like the steward runs everything. You know, kings have to do a lot of sitting on their throne and 
and going to banquets and you know statesman stuff, but you need a guy who's actually doing everything. And I believe that's what Shebna was. Now Shebna is being demoted, and that authority is being taken away from him, and is being given to Eliakim, or that's the prophecy anyway. Verse twenty-three regarding Eliakim, he says, "I will drive him like a peg in a firm place. Maybe it's a tent peg, maybe it's a peg in the wall. He will become a throne of glory to his father's house." Doesn't this sound messianic? So they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, offspring and issue, all the least of the vessels, from the bowls to all the jars. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg driven in a firm place will give way. It will even break off and fall. And the load hanging on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. So even for Eliakim, it's not going to go so well. Okay, now what we're going to do is we're going to skip ahead to chapter... 25. We could look at chapter 24, but we don't have to. We don't have any quotations from chapter 24. Chapter 24 reads like an apocalypse. It kind of seems to me, chapter 24 seems to leave this immediate political situation. It starts to talk about the big picture. The big picture is, you know what? All the kings of the nations are going to be brought together and God's going to make war on all of them and He's going to shake the earth and He's going to shake the heavens and then He's going to take up His throne in Jerusalem and in Zion and that sort of thing. And so it's what you have going on. One of those types of things in chapter 24. And we come to the end of chapter 24 where it says in verse 23, Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. The Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before His elders. So that's the vision. Even though Isaiah is dealing with all of this political stuff that's going on in his day and age, he keeps throwing, in, since Isaiah chapter 2, he keeps throwing in front of his, his the people who are listening to him, he keeps throwing this, this messianic future of here's the, here's the kingdom. Here's what the kingdom's going to look like. And that's what he's got going on right now. And he says in, verse, in chapter 25, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name. You have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. You have made a city into a heap. I believe this is Nineveh. A fortified city into a ruin. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. For you have been a defense for the helpless. This is, of course, Judah. A defense for the needy in his distress. A refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. Like heat in drought, you subdue the uproar of aliens. Like heat by the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless is silenced. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. On Mount Zion. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. That is, he will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. 
And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God, for whom we have waited, that, we might, that He might save us. This is the Lord, for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Alright, that's as far as we're going to go. That's as far as we need, need to read. So that's the vision. That's the big picture. That's the kingdom of heaven right there. Alright, now, Isaiah and the New Testament. We'll start in Revelation with that Babylon is fallen text. I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's pretty stark. The prophecies against Babylon in the book of Revelation, they're hard to miss. And they're certainly anachronistic, aren't they? I mean, regardless of how you read Revelation, whether you're reading it as primarily taking place in the first century or primarily taking place in the end times, Babylon? Babylon, I mean, maybe Babylon is a concern in the 6th century BC. Babylon? Why why are we talking about Babylon? And occasionally somebody comes along and tries to fix this up for us. We'll say, well, you know, this is, um, you know, Iraq. uh, This is really getting crazy in the Middle East here. This must be what, you know, we're talking about this problem. I don't know. I don't think so. Babylon's not the center of the world anymore. Or you'll hear, you'll hear this time. This uh, sometimes I've I've heard this line. Well, you know, Babylon is New York City. You know, it's like, so isn't it obvious? Ba- Tower of Babel, uh, UN, the UN, uh, all nations, Babylon, that sort of thing. Uh, where you know, there's all sorts. Babylon is the United States. No, it's not. And it's not Babylon either. When we read this passage in chapter 14, verse 8, and another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. He was quoting Isaiah. The angel was quoting the text we just read from Isaiah tonight, wasn't he? She who made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Yes. Or we could look at the other passage I referenced here, Revelation 18, verse 2. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit, a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. And this whole chapter goes on to talk about the fall of Babylon. So, Babylon is a cipher for Rome. It's nothing more than that. Uh, in the first century, especially at the time the book of Revelation is written, you couldn't say Rome. Even It wouldn't have been good poetry in the first place. But aside from that, uh, you couldn't say Rome. You couldn't write Rome is fallen. You could write Edom, and that's the direction the rabbis took it. They, 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 they used Edom as a cipher, as a code for Rome. The believers used the word Babylon as a code for Rome. And I could prove that to you a couple different ways, but I'm not going to bother. It's not what we're studying tonight. I'm just showing you Isaiah being used in the New Testament. Here we have two examples of the same verse, Isaiah 21.9 being quoted. All right. Uh, How about 1 Corinthians? Let's go over to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 15. We might as well pick up two of them while we're here. You know what 1 Corinthians 15 is famous for? 
This is the great resurrection chapter where Paul is defending the concept of resurrection. He's uh, arguing with Greeks, sophists, who don't want to believe in a resurrection. He says, you got to be kidding me. You're going to be a believer in the risen Messiah, but you don't believe in a literal resurrection. What are you, a Sadducee? And so... Chapter 15 is his argument along those lines. And we read in verse 32. He says, If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? Nobody really knows what he means by that. Did he really fight in the arena at Ephesus? Not in the book of Acts. There there is some ambiguity there. I like to think that there's just a story that's not in the book of Acts about uh, Paul getting thrown in an arena <laughs> in Ephesus. There, there is an apocryphal story about that, about how he sh- shuts a lion's mouth. I don't think that's it. That wouldn't make sense. That, that wouldn't make sense in, in this context. Because he's risking his life. He's not. His point is, if there's no resurrection, what did I risk my life for? I could have been killed. <laughs> that's his point. If I fight with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let's eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. So in other words, if there's no resurrection, Paul says, there's nothing better for a person than straight up hedonism. Enjoy life as much as possible, because this is it. And when it's over, you're done. And don't risk your life for stupid religious ideas. Once again, he's quoting from Isaiah, right? Okay, there's another one from, from this chapter. we we'll pick up while we're here. Uh, down in verse 54, he says, But when this perishable, that's this human body, will have put on the imperishable, that's the resurrected body, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And then another quote, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That's, a, that's not from Isaiah. But the first one, death is swallowed up. We saw that. That's the prophecy of the kingdom that we just read in Isaiah 25, where it said, um, He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe away tears away from all faces. Um, back to Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, beginning of verse 7. Our Master dictating a letter to the assembly at Philadelphia says and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write he who is holy who is true who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one opens says I know your deeds behold I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Okay, this is obviously coming from Isaiah as well. This is we, we learned this regarding Shebna and Eliakim. This is in reference to the steward of the house of David. Yeshua in this passage is saying that you know he's he's quoting the passage, saying, I have the authority of the house of David, the, the keys to the kingdom, so to speak. Does this coincide with when Jesus says to Peter, people that give him the keys? Exactly. 
Yeah, right on. Exactly. So if you see on, on your seat on your sheet here where it says Key of David, I also have you going over to Matthew sixteen. So just like King Hezekiah was able to invest that authority of the house of David with his steward, Yeshua does the same, he invests his authority in his disciples. He says uh, in this passage, he says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So the keys of the house of David and the keys of the kingdom of heaven is, is the same thing. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, which is parallel to whatever you open uh, will be opened, whatever you shut will be shut. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So this is legal authority that he's handed on to the disciples. Just like Hezekiah was able to give his steward legal authority. So uh, this isn't the only place that we see that the Master has assigned the twelve disciples authority in his name. Uh, He gave them, in Matthew 10, it says he gave them authority. Another passage, he tells them, you will sit on twelve thrones, ruling over the twelve tribes of Israel. The twelve disciples are pretty important, you could say. Where else? What else do we have to look at tonight? We have to look at. We don't have to look at anything else tonight. That statement about death being swallowed up, uh, I've, it also appears in Revelation chapter seven. You can look it up yourself. Uh, and um, regarding that kingdom uh, banquet, the banquet of the kingdom that we were having on Mount Sinai, where we were being served aged wine, you know, that's kept wine. That's like the Messiah banquet. There are so many passages that allude to the Messianic banquet. The Messianic banquet, that banquet of the kingdom of heaven, is a primary fixture of Jewish eschatology. So much so that that's what Yeshua was... I mean, there's so many we could look at. But this is what Yeshua was referring to when he said to his disciples, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. He has in mind the banquet of the kingdom of heaven in Isaiah 25. Or when his mother says, they're out of wine, and he says, what does it have to do with me? My time has not yet come. His point is, it's not yet the banquet. We're not at the banquet of the kingdom yet. So many passages. We're invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's the wedding supper of the Lamb, Isaiah 25.